Good morning, Boker Tov. We have the privilege this week of studying not one, but uh, two parshios. I should say not studying, but reading, because we're only going to study one. Bahar and Bichu Kosai, page 696 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Bahar begins with the laws of Shemitah, which is what we're going to investigate in depth. Appropriate since this is a Shemitah year in Israel with ramifications uh, around the world. So the parasha begins with the laws of Shemitah, that six years we work the land, and the seventh year the land uh, rests. And uh, we'll talk more in a moment, we'll investigate the deeper meaning, the deeper reasons behind the uh, commandment, the mandate of Shemitah. Torah then continues with the laws of Yovel, that we count a series of seven Shemitah cycles, 49 years, and the 50th year is the Yovel year, in which... uh, People are set free, in which land is returned, and uh, Yovel has uh, great significance. The um, Torah then, then tells us all about the uh, laws of the redemption of land. When land returns, essentially we never own, we never fully own land. It's essentially a land lease. We purchase the rights to use the land, but the land returns to its uh, ancestry. We have the laws of these Are Leviim, the Are Leviim we've shared in the past. The Leviim as a tribe were designated to be the teachers, the role models of the Jewish people. They were the community kolel. They therefore were not designated land to live alone, to live isolated from other people, but rather each tribe had to designate land among their territory cities for Leviim to live. So the Leviim could be dispersed among the other tribes and have that positive influence. And they therefore live off of the, uh, they don't have their own land, it means they don't have their source of income. It was an agricultural society, an agrarian society, in which farmers derived income from working the land. If Levim didn't have their own territory, they didn't have their own income. And that's the origin of the uh, Meiser, the obligation of tithing and separating in support of the Levim. So again, the community kola model, you support individuals so they are free to teach and to inspire uh, among the community. Torah then tells us, What happens when a person becomes impoverished, when a person falters, when they become financially constrained or limited. So Torah tells us the obligation, You have to strengthen them. You have to support them and uplift them. It's interesting, if you look at that Pasuk, on page 702, the word imach is repeated. Twice it says, with you. Why do I care if the person became poor in proximity to me? Why do I care where they ran into their financial hardship? Shouldn't it be I have to search out? I have to seek out? Or if I learn of a person's financial challenge, I have to help them? What difference does it make, imach, that it's repeated twice? I once suggested, based on an insight of the Baal Shem Tov, the holy Baal Shem, the founder of uh, Hasidism, Baal Shem says the following insight. The Mishnah says in Avos, Know what is above you. An eye is watching, an ear is listening, and everything you say is being recorded. So classically, traditionally, the Mishnah is understood to mean be careful about everything you do. You think you're alone, you think it's private, you think no one knows. Everything we do is recorded. Everything we do, the Ribbonu Shalom Dama know that God knows everything you do, everything you think. HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows all of our behavior. There's a watching eye, and there's a listening ear, and all we do is being recorded. And we can appreciate this Mishnah perhaps more than any other generation in history, thanks to the NSA. We can understand what it means. Thanks to the NSA, we understand what it means that everything we're doing is being recorded. But the Bashem, the Bashem understood this Mishnah differently. Said the Bashem, know that there is God above you. And therefore, everything that happens to you is not chance, it's not random, it's not coincidence. I and Roa, what you see, you were meant to see. You were placed there. Ozen Shomas, what you hear is not chance, you were meant to hear. And now how you react, 
and how you respond to being placed in that circumstance, to being put in that position, how you answer, how you respond, that kol how you respond will be recorded forever. So perhaps you can apply the Baal Shem's insight to this Pasuk. Imach! A person fell on hard times, ran into financial hardship with you, means among you, near you. It's not chance. It's not random. Don't look the other way. Don't pretend you didn't see. Don't bury your eyes. But it happened in proximity to you and you know about it because you were meant to intercede. It was by design. Nothing is chance. You were meant to see it. You were meant to hear about it. You were meant to help. Imach. It happened among you. Torah tells us the prohibition of lending with interest. You're not allowed to charge uh, ribbis or a neshech. What's the difference between neshech and ribbis? Subject of uh, one of the most difficult prakim in shas, Ezu neshech. You're not allowed to charge with interest, which we've pointed out numerous times, is not a moral prohibition, because if charging interest were morally repugnant, you couldn't charge interest to a non-Jew. If it was something immoral, why would you be allowed to do it to a non-Jew? But rather, the Torah is trying to instill within us, to cultivate within us, a sense of family. There's nothing wrong with charging interest. There's a time value of money. Your money could be making you more money. And if you lend that money to someone else, you don't have access to use it, you don't have access to make income from it. There's a time value of money. So being paid interest is perfectly moral. So why aren't we allowed to charge it to one another? For a very simple reason, the Mepharshim point out. Because if a stranger asks you for a loan, and you charge interest, there's nothing wrong with that. You deserve income on your money, the time value of money. But what happens if your son or daughter, your brother or sister, your niece or nephew come and they say, I'm having a hard time making the bills, could I borrow some money? You say, sure, just sign these documents and pay me 8%, 4%, 12%, 3%, whatever percent. You're not a very nice person. What kind of family member charges a family member interest? They need the money, help them out. Yes, there's a time value. Yes, there's nothing immoral or unethical. But you don't charge a family member interest. So the Torah says when a non-Jew comes for a loan, they're not in the family. There's nothing immoral about charging interest, the time value of money. But when your family member asks you for a loan, then you don't start charging interest. Torah tells us again, and so on, how you treat others when they fall on hard times. This is much of the essence of the end of our of the end of our parsha. That is Parsha's Bahar. Parsha's Bahukosai begins in Bahukosai Telechu, which Shetua Melam Torah, we should uh, be totally invested in toiling in Torah, it's Mitzvah Tishmaru, and so on. Torah begins by promising us the blessings that we will receive. You'll get your rain in its season. And the great promise. Vishaftem lavetach be'aretzachem v'nasati shalom ba'aretz A promise that we so desperately crave and long for. You will dwell with betach in your land and you will live with shalom in your land. Sounds like a redundant promise. What's the difference between betach and shalom? Vishaftem lavetach be'aretzachem You will dwell with betach v'nasati shalom and I will give you shalom. What's the difference between the two? I spoke about this in previous years. You could listen online for the answer. But the promise is, we'll have some level of peace in the land. I'll give you a hint. Betach is bitachon. What's bitachon? Insurance. Insurance? It means security. What's the root of security, the core of security? Bitachon is a promise. Your security is... When you enter a security arrangement, you're relying on the promise of being provided with security. But a promise can be violated. A promise can be rescinded. A promise can be temporary. Shalom is real, lasting, authentic, permanent peace. So the first promise is, you'll have a level of bitachon, you'll have a level of security. But that security, we know, there's ceasefires, there's calm, but the storm can always return. So the greater promise is, I'll give you real, true, lasting, authentic, 
permanent peace. That's the greatest aspiration. That's the higher level promise. And the Torah here delineates all of the, the description of what it will be like. The old and the new. Very beautiful allusions. Very a beautiful language. And a very peculiar bracha. God says, I will choose to dwell among you. And I will not sigal. What does sigal mean? I will not be repulsed by you. I will not reject you. I will, you won't become disgusting to me. That's very romantic. Could you imagine you propose to the girl and you say, Listen, I'd like to get married. I want to live together. I want to grow old together. I'd like to move in and put my countenance, place my presence among you. And uh, dear honey, I want you to know, you will never be repulsive to me. <laughs> what kind of promise is that? What kind of bracha is that? It's a strange bracha, no? What do you think? You'll never be repulsive to me. Wouldn't go over big. All right, we've spoken about this in the past too. You can think about it. And I will dwell among you. That's the beginning. The promise, the bra. I have a good answer to that question. But for another time. So then the Torah goes on with the tochacha. With the harsh and graphic and descriptive rebuke. The consequences and the accountability of dismissing God's will. The horrific description of what happens to us when we don't listen. The tochacha. Here is what's going to go on if you don't listen to me and you don't heed my word. We say it in a whisper under our breath. We don't want to invoke at all these curses. God forbid the admonition. Torah then continues with the gifts to the temple, the laws of Erchen. The laws of Erchen means that just like I have all other kinds of karbonos, I give a sacrifice, some of them voluntary sacrifices. I can make a pledge to the Beis HaMikdash, a pledge to the Mishkan of my value or another person's value. How do you determine someone's value? Their height, their weight, their intelligence, their earnings, their income, their athleticism, their artistic ability. How do you define somebody's value? How many friends they have on Facebook? How many followers they have on Twitter? What determines a person's erech? What determines a person's value? So the, uh, the Torah tells us the Torah has the description depending on the gender and depending on the age. Before I should point out, this section is totally out of place. Erechin should be among the laws of the Korbanos that we've already had towards the beginning of Vayikra. We had all kinds of Korbanos, all kinds of sacrifices, donations, pledges, gifts, obligatory and voluntary to the Mishkan. Why here after the Tochacha, at the very end of Sefer Vayikra, seemingly out of place, why here do we have Erechin? Why here do we have Erechen? I once saw a magnificent answer. I don't remember offhand from whom. I apologize. The Torah places it here to make a very important lesson. To teach a very important message. What might I have erroneously concluded after reading the Tochacha? I might have made the mistake of saying, what's it really all worth? What's the point of it all? We're so fragile and so vulnerable. These terrible suffering. We can easily be eliminated. What's the point of it? What's the value of life? What's the point of it all? What's the worth of a man? So the Torah says, just when we're vulnerable to think that, the Torah comes along and gives us the laws of Erchen. The inestimable value of a person. The Erech. We continue to have value. We continue to have worth. And you see this elsewhere in the Torah. You see this elsewhere. In Parshas Noach, seemingly out of nowhere, we have a prohibition of the prohibition of murder. You're not allowed to kill. Where's the uh, language? It's actually communicated in a very peculiar fashion. But the Torah tells us... Uh, where is it? There it is. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed in the image of God. What is this doing here? Parshas Noach, out of nowhere. So again, Noach comes off the Teva. 
you might think all of humanity is destroyed. What's the point of it all? What's the value of man? Why try? What are we really even worth? Comes along the Torah and tells us, you're not allowed to murder. You see this after the laws of war? What comes after the laws of war? The law of Egla Arufa. You might think after the laws of war, people die in battle, you kill your enemy indiscriminately. You might think, what's the value of man? Comes along the laws of Egla Arufa. So here you have Erchen at the very end of the Torah of, of Sefer Vayikra, seemingly out of place, should have been included among the Karbonos. Why is it here? To remind us that just as we think that man may have no value, the great value of man. Okay, and then the sanctification, laws of houses and field, second tithe, tithe of animals, and chazak, chazak, vinis chazek, the end of Sefer Vayikra. Let's go back and look at the beginning of Parshas Bahar. What I want to study a little bit together today, this morning in depth, is the, uh, the laws of Shemitah. We find ourselves currently in a Shemitah year. It's a Shemitah year in the Holy Land of Israel. But the land, it being a Shemitah year in the Land of Israel does not just have implications for the Land of Israel, it has implications wherever you live. Because when produce from Israel is exported, and much of the produce I understand that you purchase at Costco, red peppers and others are imported from Israel, they continue, they maintain Kedusha Shviz. They maintain the sanctity of Shviz, which has great implications. First of all, something that has Kedusha Shviz, something that has that sanctity, needs to be consumed in a certain way, cannot be disposed of, but must be allowed to rot before it is thrown away. Sometimes we'll have the laws of Biur applied to it. Um, the Svichin, if that vegetable is the result of uh, growth during the Shemitah year, there's a rabbinic prohibition against Svichin that anything, that any vegetable, legume that grows in the Shemitah year is prohibited automatically. Even if it was retrieved in a permissible fashion, so to say, uh, but it's, it's prohibited. Anything that repeats every year being grown and grown during Shemitah is prohibited. Why? The Rabbanon came along and they saw that people were growing things during Shemitah, claiming that it took root before Shemitah or they had planted it before Shemitah, and uh, they were trying to uh, ignore the laws, and so they therefore prohibited anything that is harvested, that's taken during Shemitah, any vegetable, legume, anything that regenerates every single year, that's the law of Shemitah. So there are implications for us, what we can eat, are you allowed to buy it at all, and if you can, how you dispose of it, and whether the laws of Bior apply to it or not. So it's important to understand the laws of Shemitah, not only if you live in Israel, but even outside of Israel, as well as, we're not going to study it today, it's in Parshas Re'eh, but Shemitah's Ksafim, the laws of Shemitah nullifying any loan. If you've lent anyone money, that loan at the end of this year is going to be canceled unless you invoke Hillel's wonderful prisbal. The prisbal, the great legal loophole that was introduced by Hillel in order to avoid the cancellation of the loan. Again, that's in Parshas Re'eh, but Shemitah's Ksafim applies to Rabbanan, but it applies outside of the land of Israel as well. So in that way, Shemitah is relevant for us. So let's take a look at this Pesukim. Perak Pasuk Aleph, page 696 in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash. God spoke to Moshe, and where did he relate these laws? Where did he speak to him? Behar Sinai. All the Mephorshim jump on this and point out. The Torah does not normally tell us the geographic location of where mitzvahs are transmitted. It's not relevant. It's relevant to the mitzvahs. That's what are timeless. Where they were given, who cares? So why now does the Torah tell us the Har Sinai? Specifically that the laws are given in Har Sinai. Rashi, quoting the Medrash, makes the famous comment. Ma inyan Shemitah etzel Har Sinai. What does Shemitah have to do with Har Sinai? That these laws were given at Har Sinai. Um, I once heard uh, another rabbi describe... I think I've shared this before. He was in Israel watching television. And uh, sometimes when you're in Israel watching television, you read the um, subtitles. You can improve your Hebrew. You're watching a show in English, you read the subtitles, you're learning. So there was an episode of Kojak on uh, TV in Israel. And uh, I don't know Kojak. Who's the sidekick on Kojak? Kojak is the sidekick. I don't remember. 
What? He's a detective, but he has some sidekick on the show. The sidekick on the show says to him at one point, or Kojak turns to the sidekick and says at one point, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? And the subtitle says, Ma Inyan Shmita, Eitzel Har Sinai. <laughs> True story. It's another reason to make Aliyah. The subtitles on television invoke Rashi. Ma Inyan Shmita, Eitzel Har Sinai. What does it have to do with the price of tea in China? Asks Rashi. All the laws were given from Sinai. Not just the laws of Shemitah. All Daraisa, all laws. Explicit in the Torah, derived through our hermeneutical laws. So why is Shemitah singled out that here God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai? Just like Shemitah, the generalities, the principles, as well as the details, were all given at Sinai. So too we should know that not only were the generalities given at our Sinai, but the details, the intricacies, the minutia, all of it was given at our Sinai. What does it mean God gave it at Sinai? Just like with Shemitah we have principles and we have details. And it was all given at Sinai, so too in all of Halacha, relevant to all mitzvahs, not only the general generalities, not only the themes, the principles, but all the details were given. That's Rashi, famous Rashi, to tell us that it all comes from Sinai. The details, not only the principles. The Balaturim gives a different explanation. Says the Balaturim, Samach Mekala Lahar Sinai. The end of last week's parsha ended, Emor ended with the story of the Mekala, of the Megadev. He comes along and he curses God. And uh, what we have to do to such an individual who blasphemes the Almighty. So why we tend to have a break between one Parsha and another? We think of Parshios as being broken up by different weekends. But if you read the Torah direct, directly, you can see the um, contrast better. So the Mekalel is immediately next to this reference to Harsinai. And that bothers the Balaturim. What's the connection? So he says, "Lafisha b'sinai shamu lo sisa v'nizdazeya kol haolam b'zeshem avalonizar." We heard one of the principles, one of the uh, dibros lo sisa. You're not allowed to take God's name in vain. This individual, I'm sorry, the the world heard that and it shook. The significance of God's name, the sense of awe and reverence we are to have, and yet this individual zeshem, I heard, avalonizar. He wasn't careful. He didn't care. He didn't care. He was irreverent. Vaod kedisa bekedushin sham ben arbaos yos chacham and motzim osal tamidei and pamachas shavu lekach samach loshmita. Fine. So that's the mekalal, the connection to Har Sinai. The reason we mention Har Sinai is this mekalal. Everyone else heard of Har Sinai. The relevance, the, the uh, reverence we are to have for God's name. This individual heard and didn't care. Okay. The Rashbam gives another reason. Why do we mention Har Sinai to tell us? That we're out of order here. Kodem Shuhukam Moed. This mitzvah of Shemitah, while it is recorded here at the end of Vayikra, it really was given earlier before we went into the O Moed. The Ibn Ezra also embraces this. Says the Ibn Ezra, Ain Batorah. The Ibn Ezra is of the opinion that the Torah is written thematically, not chronologically. Kodem Really, Bahar should come before all of Sefer Vayikra, says the Ibn Ezra. Kiadibur Bahar Sinai. Because we ended off, we ended off Shemos with the story of Har Sinai. Yisro and Mishpatim, the laws. And if this was given at Har Sinai, it really, really belongs at the end of Shemos, not at the end of Vayikra. So of course that begs the question. 
if chronologically it's out of order, if really it belongs at the end of Shemos, why did God choose to put it at the end of Vayikra? Why is it here? Says the Ibn Ezra, in order to connect it to the conditions of entering the land. Kasher When it came to promiscuity, Torah told us that illicit relations, promiscuity, uh, sexual depravity and immorality is a cause for our being exiled, vomited out of the land. So too about the dwelling in the land. Another cause for being expelled, exiled, expunged, vomited from the land is if we don't observe Shemitah. So says the Ibn Ezra, we put those things together. That yes, these laws were given at Har Sinai. And chronologically it belonged with all the other laws and the narrative about the laws given at Har Sinai. But now at the end of Vayikra, we're told of the special covenant of God, of God and the Jewish people. A covenant expressed through our connection to our homeland. Our homeland can't tolerate sexual depravity, immorality, licentiousness, promiscuity, and our homeland can't tolerate not observing Shemitah. We'll get to in a moment. Why? What's the connection? Why? That's so important, Shemitah. Letting the little fear, the vegetables sit, don't work the land, don't sell it. That's so important. That's more important than Shabbos. It doesn't say if you don't keep Shabbos, the land will vomit you. It doesn't say if you don't keep kosher, the land will vomit you. It doesn't say if you don't have honest way to measure, the land will vomit you. Shemitah? Why of all things is Shemitah so important in order to retain our connection to the land? So why are we saying, Bahar Sinai, why do we care geographically where this is given? According to Rashi, it's to tell us that just as Shemitah, Shemitah is a model. Just as Shemitah, the principles and the details were all given at Sinai, so too all mitzvahs and all halacha, the principles and the laws were all given at Sinai. That's Rashi. The Balaturim said it's to connect to the Mikalo of last week's Parsha. Everyone heard at Sinai, don't curse God. This low-life Oisvarf Mikalo heard that and ignored it. And look at the consequences. That's the Balaturim. The Rashbam and the Ibn Ezra say, Sinai is to tell me it's out of order. Really, this was given earlier. Ah, why is it only recorded here? To tell me about the special covenant of the Jewish people and the land. And lastly, the Svarna. The Svarna also addresses this question. We never mention the place that the mitzvah is given unless the place has relevance to the mitzvah. So why here are we mentioning Har Sinai? When God at Har Sinai told Moshe that the seventh year its impact, he was giving, delivering the laws of Shemitah. And this is for us to understand and appreciate, to teach. That this is true for all the other laws as well. The laws of Shemitah we elaborate. The laws of Shemitah we delineate the details. It doesn't just say don't work the land. It says, Right? This is the Rashbam is expanding on his grandfather, Rashi. It doesn't just have the basic, but it has the details. And it wants to let us know that with all mitzvahs, we don't just have the generalities, but they are expanded and expounded. So why is Moshe giving this specifically now? Why is Moshe giving this now? What does Moshe think at that moment? Where are they about to enter? What has not yet occurred? Why did they not go into Israel? Because it was a punishment for the sin of the spies. The hate of the Miraglim. 
Did the Sechetim Maraglim yet happen? No. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu think at this point, at this moment? What do the people think? Came out of Egypt, that was one promise. I'm fine, Bob. Came out of Egypt, that's one promise. Har Sinai, we received the Torah, that's another promise. Check, check. What's next? Marching into Israel. So says the Sforno, Moshe thinks they're about to go into Israel. As he says in Bamidbar, We're now going to the place. So the most important, one of the most important, arguably the most important law in order to merit the retention of the land is Shemitah. He thinks they're about to go in. So before we march in, let me remind you, this land is yours. Six, isn't there a song like that? Six years you should work this land. Six years enjoy this land. But the seventh year belongs to God. And when is the time to tell the people that? Not in the beginning of Vayikra with Korbanos. Not in Shemos when you're at Harsinai and the land is a distant dream. But when you're about to go in Tekef, when you're about to go into the land, that's when you, that's when you give this. Okay, so the Sfarno gives us another perspective on why it's here. If really it was given at Harsinai, why is it reserved here? Because they're going. To, they think they're about to go into the land. Yes. No. Um, Moshe in collaboration with God. God is the one who dictated the Torah, and God is the one who determined the order of the Torah. So it means that God wants us to read the Torah through the eyes of those who lived it, who thought they were about to go into the land. Is that a better way of putting it? Okay. <laughs> so what's Shemitah really all about? Farmers all over Israel today are allowing their land to lay fallow. They're not working the land. People who have a garden in their backyard are not working the land. Why? What's Shemitah really all about? So let's see. Speak to the Jewish people and tell them, when they enter the land that I am giving them, the They will observe a Shabbos for God. When they come into the land, they should the land should observe a Shabbos, and the land is observing this Shabbos for whom? For God. Really? Don't work the land for God? How does it help God? It's a peculiar formulation. It is a Shabbos. So first of all, we see that Shemitah is likened to Shabbos. Shemitah is given to us as a mitzvah. In the terminology, it's, there's a parallel between Shemitah and Shabbos. That's very instructive. But also it's told that it's for God. Shabbos Lashem. What does that mean? Rashi says, L'Shem Hashem. Kishem Shenem are B'Shabbos Bereshis. It doesn't mean for God. God has no needs. God is omnipotent, infinite, perfect, has no needs. You're not laying, la- allowing the land to rest for God. It means L'Shem Hashem. It means in God's name. Right? We talked about last week in Emor. Kiddush Hashem and Chilol Hashem. You can't impact God. God is immutable. But you can impact God's name. Kiddush Hashem, sanctify God's name. And Chilol Hashem. Desecrate God's name. The impact is to His name, not to Him. So here you see similarly, Shabbos Lashem. Rashi says, Lashem Hashem. Again, the impact is to God's name. What is the impact to God's name? So let's see. Keep reading. Sheish Shanim Tizra Sadecha. Six years you work your field. The Sheish Shanim Tizmor Karmecha. And six years you prune your vineyard, and go harvest the land. Now, keep going. In the seventh year, it is a rest. Again, why is it called Shabbos? Likened to Shabbos. Shabbos Lashem, repeated. Sadachalos is more. The Sizra Vachamachalos is more. The land you shall not plant, and your vineyard. You shall not prune. Six years work the land, seventh year let it rest. Why does the Torah tell me work the land six years? 
Why does it tell me to work the land six years? Just tell me, let the land rest. Count every seventh year and let it rest the seventh year. What if I want to let the land rest from year one through six as well? Why does the Torah tell me six years work the land? In the seventh year, let it rest. Seventh year, I'm obligated to let it rest. But what if I voluntarily want to let it rest in the third year, the fourth year, the first year, the sixth year? Why sheishanim tizrasadecha? Sheishanim tizmar karmecha. To make sure that you'll have enough. Good, the Torah is about to give that promise. If you observe Shemitah in the sixth year, it will grow enough to last three years. Okay, so don't have the option of taking off the sixth year. What if I don't want to work years one through five? So the Sforno says, As tuchal if you allow the land to rest the seventh year, then you will merit, you will be able to, you'll have the capacity to work at six years straight. You can work at really hard that land, knowing that the seventh year it can rest. Normally in agriculture, you never want to work a land so hard, so with Ritsufa, so consistently, so straight. You need to give it a break. People need a break. The land needs a break. You'll destroy, you'll compromise the land. So the Rashbah, the Isforno rather understands, Sheishanim Tizmor Kamecha is not obligating me to work, but it's telling me, you will have the ability to work the land. Unlike normal farmers who don't take a seventh year off, so don't work it. So you have to, every other year, give time off. But if you know you're going to give the seventh year off, then you can work it six years straight. That is the Svarno. The Ramban has a different interpretation. Says the Ramban, Derech HaKaslov Lomarkein, Sheishas Yamim Ta'avod, V'yasisa Kom Lachtecha. Comes along the Ramban and he says, where else do we see this language, this formulation of six years work? We see it with days. When it comes to Shabbos, it doesn't just say every seventh day is Shabbos. Rest. No malacha, no creative labor. It says six days ta'avod malachtecha. What if I want? What if I'm retired? What if I want to rest on days one through six? Must I sheshamim ta'avod? So says the Ramban with a technical halachic extrapolation you see from the formulation six years in the positive work on the seventh year rest what do you have? From the fact that you're not allowed to work in the seventh year, in contrast to the assay of working the other six years, creates an assay of resting in the seventh year, which means that a person who works the field in the seventh year violates not only a lav, but also violates an assay. Uh, it's a halachic technical, it's okay if you didn't follow. Oh. We'll get to that in one moment. And I interpretation quotes the Ramban is if you uh, um, observe Shemitah properly, then you'll have successful six years of planting and the seventh you rest. But if you don't observe Shemitah properly, every other year your land's going to do nothing for you. You're going to have four Shemitahs within the seven-year unit. Not intentionally, unintentionally. Your land simply won't produce for you. Okay? So the Svarno says, why Sheshanim Tizra, why six years? Says the Svarno to tell me that I will have the capacity to work the land hard six years, as long as I let it rest. Says the Ramban, it's to derive an assay that if I work the land in the seventh year, I violate not only a lav, I violate an assay as well. And it's also to tell me that 
is similar to the Yisvorno, if I let it rest properly, I can truly work it for six years. If I don't, one of my punishments will be it won't produce in those earlier six years. I once shared in Adrasha a third interpretation. It's not a coincidence the Torah tells me six years work the land, or six years, or six days work before Shabbos. You see, in Judaism, work is not a concession. Unlike in Christianity, where work is a concession to man's sin, it's a punishment. For us, work is noble. Work is part of the mandate of kifshuha. God told us to conquer His world, to understand and manipulate it and to work it. The Gemara tells us, based on the Mishnah, that a person who doesn't work, it leads to idleness, leads to boredom, and boredom leads to promiscuity. And the Gemara elaborates all the bad problems that people get into when they're idle. If you're bored and you have time on your hands and you're idle, you gossip, you're jealous, you're envious, you're bored, you look at, you investigate, you experiment, you try, you think, you pursue. Boredom leads people into problems, into challenges. To gamble, you go sit at the hard rock all day, you have nothing else to do, at the blackjack table. Boredom and idleness lead to problems. For us, work is not a concession to the frailty of man, but in Judaism, work is a noble deed. God worked six days and then He rested on the seventh day. We work six days. So the Torah formulates Shemitah not just about the seventh year taking off, but telling us, use those six years productively. Work, exert effort, toil, realize your potential, influence and impact the world, accomplish Vikishua, go conquer the world. Okay, so that's the formulation of the six before the seven. Again, the Torah says, it's Shabbos Lashem. What's the purpose of this? It is for God. It's for God. How is it for God? The Sforno already gives us a hint. Shabbos Lashem. What's going to happen? The farmer in the seventh year has nothing to eat. The seventh year, the farmer, you know, not like rabbis or academics who have a paid sabbatical, right? Our modern day sabbatical is a paid sabbatical where you take off in order to rejuvenate and replenish, but you get paid. Not a lot of risk, not a lot of fear, not a lot of uncertainty. You're paid in that sabbatical. The farmer has an unpaid sabbatical and it ain't voluntary. Torah tells them every seventh year, you can't work your land. Not working the land means no income. It means nothing to eat. And God says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. So what does the farmer do in that seventh year? Relies on Hashem. That's why it's Shabbos Lashem, says the Svarna. It's Shabbos Lashem because to whom is the farmer turning in that seventh year? Has no one to rely on other than to turn to Hashem. Let's keep going. Pasuk, hey, esviach kitzicholos etzor, you're not allowed to harvest the aftergrowth. In other words, you dropped a seed in your field and it grew on its own. Or the that which was blossoming reproduced something. Not something you actively planted, but on its own, the aftergrowth. Lo sektor, you're not allowed to harvest. In vain is irecha lo sektor. You cannot reap your grapes. It is a sabbatical for the land. It is a sabbatical. Says the Ibn Ezra, Shnas Shabason, Hatam, Kishnas Shabason hi Laaretz, the Hatam Sha'aretz Eina Bishuscha Bishanazos. It's a sabbatical for the land. That land doesn't belong to you for that year. You're not entitled to work it. It's not yours. To whom does it belong? Belongs to Hashem. The heavens belongs to God and God gave the earth to man with the exception with the exception of Eretz Yisrael. Continues to belong to God. How does God remind us that that belongs to Him? The seventh year, you can't touch it. It's His, not yours. Let's keep going. So it tells us the Shabbos, the produce 
of the land shall be yours to eat. You and your servant, your slave, the person who works for you, the resident with you. The animal in your land, all of this food belongs for them, for you to eat. Okay? So you can't work the land. What grows is hefker. It's ownerless. Anyone is entitled to it. And you have to provide access. The farmer can't leave the fence locked. He has to provide access. And it's all ownerless. ownerless, And everyone is entitled to come and get it. So let's see some of the deeper meaning to it. We already saw the Svorno said Shabbos Lashem. The farmer is going to increase his emuna. The farmer is going to every seventh year take an unpaid sabbatical which will cultivate within him a greater sense of faith and dependence, reliance on Hashem. He will have no choice. But what are the other reasons which are given? Let's look at the Klayakar. The Klayakar on Pasuk Beis. Go back to Pasuk Beis. Says the Klayakar, There are many opinions about the reason for the Mitzvah of Shemitah. Some say, some say it is a uh, environmental. It is a reason because of our love of the earth. We have to protect and preserve the earth. We were given guardianship of the earth. God gave us, made us ambassadors, guardians of the earth. We have to protect its well-being. Well, if you work relentlessly, the earth, it has no chance to rejuvenate. So some say that the purpose of Shemitah is kindness to Mother Earth, let the Earth rejuvenate. And this is what the Rambam seems to like. The Rambam chokim alav. Many disagree. If in fact the purpose, the reason of Shemitah is to rejuvenate the land, to be kind to the land, we shouldn't be exiled if we don't observe Shemitah. We should remain in Israel, but suffer the consequence of a land that will no longer produce because we overworked it. And if the reason is love of the land, well, that has nothing to do with God. You want to hug a tree, you want to kiss the earth, you want to love the earth, love the earth. But then why would that be called Shabbos Lashem? If the whole reason is to show love and affection to the land, how will it help to exile the Jews as punishment? Non-Jews will come inhabit the land. They have no mitzvah of Shemitah. They will continue to work the land relentlessly and the land will suffer even more. So it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up that that's the reason. So the Akeda, Yitzchak Arama, gives another answer. That the reason for this is to remember the creation of the world and the end of the world. In other words, just as, and this is the connection, the parallel to Shabbos, the world was created in six days and then rested, so too we work the land six days and then it rests. And the world will exist for 6,000 years. And then Mashiach is going to come. So that's the pattern of six and then the seven. And here too, our attitude towards the land is part of that, that model of the six and seven. If Shabbos comes every single week to remind us that God is the Creator and how He created the world and that He rested and we rest, if that's not good enough to remind us once a week, how will once every seven years remind us? What does once every seven years contribute? What does it add if we're already doing something with that theme once a week. So the, the Kliyaka rejects these first two reasons. Now 
Says the Kliyakar, I'll tell you what I think is the reason. Shemitah was given for the purpose of promoting our amuna, our faith and reliance on God. They're going to now enter the land, no longer receiving the mud, no longer eating the slav, no longer drinking from the well. And they're going to be farmers like everybody else, working the land. And what happens to the farmer who works their land? Understandably, they fall in love with what they produce. They are toiling, they're giving an effort, they're investing themselves. And when they see the product of their labor, the fruit of their labor, whom will they credit naturally? Themselves. And they'll forget God. When the man falls from Shemayim, it's hard to forget where you got your sustenance and thank God. But when you work, when you sweat, when your back aches, and then the little thing grows, and you come to eat it, you feel pretty good about yourself. And whom will you forget? The Almighty. You work that land, you begin to think, who owns this land? Who's this land's daddy? I own this land. I work this land. I make this land produce. I tell the land to grow. It's my land. It's my world. It's my product. It's my profit. It's my success. God pulls man out of the natural order of a farmer. Normally the farmer works two years, one year off. Work it two years, let it rest one. God says six years work it. I'm gonna give a miracle. You're gonna work it six years and it's not gonna you're not gonna sap it of its strength. You'd think by the sixth year it's the weakest. You've worked it six years straight, by the sixth year it's barely holding on. And what does God say? In the sixth year, I'm going to make it produce threefold. Enough for the sixth year, to carry through the seventh year, and to get you started on the eighth year. That's a miracle. By the sixth year of working it straight, it should be exhausted, the land. And the, the Kliyakar goes on and on. I don't want to take the time until you get to the last paragraph. Now you understand why if you ignore God and you work that land in that seventh year, God says, yeah, you're working the land in the seventh year? You're out of here. I'm throwing you out of the land. The land will vomit you out. Why? If you work it, you don't trust God. You, it's a violation of Amuna. You're not violating Mother Earth, environmentalism. You're violating God. God says, stick with me. Bank on me. Trust me. Follow me. And you say, ah, I'm hedging. I'm going to work. I can't do it. I'm going to work the land. I don't trust you. God says, okay. You've distanced yourself from me. I distance myself from you. Zygazunt. You're going into Golas. You're on your own. You're on your own. The land is very protective of God. The land, Kiviyachal, is very protective of God. The land knows that its real owner is God. And we are just the workers, the sharecroppers, the arisim. A sharecropper is hired to work a land, and the sharecropper gets paid by what he, a portion of what he produces. So we are the sharecroppers of the land that otherwise belongs to God. And when the land senses that the sharecropper is acting like it's the owner, the land will vomit out that sharecropper. So the land of Israel is very protective of God and wants God's ownership. Now, 
Lekach Nehmar Astir Tzara Teshap Soseah. And that, according to the Kliyakar, is what is going on. Yes. Yeah. Well, so first of all, we have we have an obligation. I don't want to get into that. We have two minutes left, so I just want to finish this up. What do we do about our red peppers? What do we do about shemitah produce? First of all, we have to be mindful. If you're buying produce from Israel, shumos and maestros could apply. Shemitah applies. Person has to be very careful. If you see that it's made in Israel, you have to be very careful. But what are the details of it? Hold off for now. Uh, I, I intended on seeing a lot more of the reasons inside. We're out of time, but I'll tell you some more of the reasons that are offered. Sefer Achinach tells us it is. Uh, Again, this notion of remembering that Hashem is the master over the world and not and not us, and to increase our bitachon, our amuna in Hashem, that Hashem created the earth, and to remove and uproot from our thinking any idea of the eternity of the world, like those believed by those who deny Torah. The way we recognize that the world, the earth, this physical world, is temporary is only is only something uh, which is a gateway to the world to come is by. We need to extract ourselves, separate ourselves from the earth. The earth is temporary, but we get confused and we wrap our identity too much with the earth. How do you remember that you are a soul, you don't have a soul? By detaching from the earth once every seventh year. That's another reason that's given by the Sefer HaChinach. Sefer HaChinach gives many reasons. Um, the Ibn Ezra says, a person should not always be occupied with working the land for material purposes. What will you do in that seventh year when you have a sabbatical? You have nothing else to do. What are you going to do? You're going to learn Torah. You're going to set aside time for learning Torah. So God imposes on man every seventh year, take off the farmer, the family, and learn Torah. All the things you claim to not have time to ever get to for those first six years, now in the seventh year, in your sabbatical, you're going to have time. Rav Cook very beautifully offers another explanation. Says Rav Cook, and here's the parallel to Shabbos. The individual removes himself from mundane life on a regular basis every Shabbos. Just the same effect Shabbos has on the individual, Shemitah has on the nation as a whole. It is a special need of the nation because from time to time the divine light within it reveals itself in its full glory. Light that is not extinguished by mundane social life with all its iron competition. So basically, just as Shabbos interrupts our mundane life and elevates us, Shemitah interrupts the mundane life of a nation and elevates the entire nation. So some of the reasons are the, the land belongs to Hashem, to increase in our trust in Hashem, belief in the creation of the world, to recognize that we are a soul, to not be too connected to the earth, to have a break, to be able to study Torah, to interrupt mundane life. One last reason. And it's based on the Rambam. Shemitah is given in two places. It's given in Bahar, where we're studying our parsha, and Shemitah is also given in Mishpatim. In Mishpatim, Shemitah seems to have more to do with the social element of the land. What happens? You have to. The farmer leaves the corner of his field. The farmer has all kinds of laws of being sensitive to the poor person that have to do with the field. Says the Rambam. There's one more law that the farmer is sensitive to the poor person and that is Shemitah. Because what happens? In Shemitah you make your field hefker. Anyone can come and take, including the poor person. So Rav Lichtenstein asked the question. Rav Lichtenstein, Zechit Tzadik Levracha, who recently passed away. He asked the following question. If you're helping the poor, so why should you not work the land? You should work the land extra. Make sure your land really produces and then open it up and say to poor people, anyone, come and take. It's all yours. Why should you dafka not work? You should work it so there's more for the poor people. Listen to what Rav Lichtenstein answers. Says Rav Aram, Working the land must cease because the Torah is not only concerned with the poor man's financial situation, but also with removing the landowner's feeling of superiority. For this reason, the owner of the field does not work his property. 
and thus he does not give anything to the poor person. The fruit grows on its own, and the land is declared ownerless. The poor person is therefore entitled to take of the ownerless produce and is not dependent upon the landowner's kindness. You know, even when the rich person gives staka, it can't help but give them a feeling of superiority. The, poor, the rich is the one who gave the staka to the poor. But God says, don't work the land and watch your land produce anyway and let the poor person take it. And know that I'm the one giving to the poor person, not you, the rich. You have no right to feel superior. You have no right to feel better. It's a very powerful message that even the one who gives staka is vulnerable to a feeling of superiority. Shemitah protects them from that feeling because by not working the land, it's an, it creates an equality. The poor person in the seventh year is, is the same level playing field as the rich person. No one can work a land, no one's richer, no one has income. It creates a level playing field every seventh year. It restores an economic feeling that everybody's on the same page. There's a lot more to talk about. We're out of time. Have a wonderful week.